Let's turn in the scriptures to John 15, where we're going to continue to get equipped and built up from the word of Christ. The gospel according to John is one of four biographies at the heart of the Bible. And it's called gospel, or good news, because it's the best news in the world. It's the news that Jesus of Nazareth is God become man, and he has the power to remake us, to forgive our sins, to change our hearts, to want to submit to God, to reconcile us forever to God. He not only has the power to remake us personally, but one of John's major points from beginning to end of this gospel is that he is the creator, which means that he has the power to give life, to restore life, and to remake the universe. That's how great Jesus of Nazareth is. He can actually rid the universe of every vestige of of the curse of sin and death. Through the first 12 chapters, John reported several miracles to make this point, and he called those miracles signs because they are actions that signify who he is, that he is the Son of Man, that he is God's chosen human to reverse all that Adam ruined, to reverse the curse, and he is God's chosen human to receive the the worship, the submission, the honor of all peoples on earth. The signs signified the reality of who Jesus is. And the only right response to these signs, John suggested for 12 chapters, was believe, submit to Jesus, commit your life to him, honor him. So 12 chapters... Here are the signs in order that you would believe. And then we came to chapter 13, which begins to recount the most significant 24-hour period of Jesus' life. It opens in chapter 13 with Jesus around the Passover dinner with his disciples. And in these final chapters, Jesus gives counsel to them about how to persevere, how to keep on how to live in his absence. And the major focus of these chapters is now on love. He said believe, and now he's stressing, he's emphasizing love. Faith results in love. The two go together, cover to cover of Scripture. When you are rightly related to God, it changes your relationship with him and others. Faith results in love. And in these chapters, Jesus is emphasizing the need for the disciples to love, to continue loving him, and to deepen in their love for one another. So in chapter 13, he gets down and washes their feet before they eat dinner. And he's urging them to love each other just like he's loved them, humbly, self-sacrificially, in a way that focuses on, on purifying others. In chapter 14... He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Instead, let your love for one another grow out of peace. John is going to say elsewhere in one of his letters, there is no fear in love. 
If you are frantic, you can't love. Your love must grow out of a context, a a heart of peace that's really settled because you have personally received and are trusting the love of Jesus. And then today, we're going to get to chapter 15 where he's going to stress that your love must persevere. It should focus on the purity of others. It should grow out of peace, chapter 14. It should persevere, chapter 15. That's what we're looking at today. Maybe I should just park and say, is that you? Are you committed to the hard work of seeking other believers' purity? As I stressed two weeks ago, this is dirty work. It's going to expose your own impurity, and the more you get to know others, the more their problems will be revealed. Are you committed to this kind of love that Jesus commands? Believers, are your hearts at peace? Have you just frankly said, I know where Jesus is right now. He's alive, ascended in heaven, and from there he's going to return. Right now he's building my permanent home. He's going to come back and take me to be with him. I'm settled no matter what's going on in my life or in the world. And today, Jesus is challenging us to persevere, right? John 15 is where we're at. Verse 1, Jesus says illustratively, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener. He's the farmer. That is a remarkable statement. I am the true vine. Jesus is not only declaring that he is the source of life and the only source of life. We're going to focus on that significantly here in a few minutes. But he is also announcing here significantly that he is true Israel. You might put here next to this verse 1, Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Ezekiel 15 through 19. He is the only Israelite that ever fulfilled God's intention for Israel. He's the only king of Israel who ever exemplified what God's design for Israel's king should be. He is true Israel. He's the only one who was ever holy like God called Israel to be, who was ever a priest like God called Israel to be, who was ever a light to the nations like God called Israel to be. In other words, verse 1 is saying a whole lot theologically. That's all I'm going to say about it. Jesus uses this illustration of himself as the vine to stress the need to remain connected to him, to persevere in faith. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now already you are clean or you are pruned because of the word that I've spoken to you. It's interesting there that the farmer often uses the word to painfully prune disciples. Jesus commands then in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now we've seen the word abide in those two verses multiple times. The word simply means remain. Or I would just say, stay put. Stay in relationship with me. Stay connected to me. He's teaching perseverance. Verse 6, he explains, if anyone does not stay put in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you stay put in me, and my words stay put in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. Just like the previous chapter, John 14, you might put 14, 13 to 14, Jesus urges his disciples to pray for the mission here of the farmer for the vine. Anything you pray, Jesus says, in in keeping with the mission of the gardener who's tending the vine to bear fruit, God's going to do it. This is the mission of the gardener. Pray in keeping with that mission. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be full. This concept of obedience, proving love, and leading to joy just reminds me of the old gospel song. I think it's 1880s. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy. Trust and obey. Jesus continues then, reinforcing this theme that faith, persevering faith, overflows in persevering love. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. In other words, obedience doesn't make you a disciple. It proves you are one. You show that you're my disciple, my friend, when you do what I say. Verse 15, no longer am I calling you servants because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, in keeping with his mission through me, He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So to encourage their love, the disciples' love, to mirror his own, Jesus explains that he has treated them not like expendable help, but he has treated them as royal friends 
as peers of the king. He's chosen them. He's shared with them his heart and his burdens. He's invested in them. And most of all, he's going to give his life for them. He's saying, what an honor has been bestowed on you. What love. Love like that. Whoa. And after preparing them to love one another, then he prepares his disciples for hate. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? He's actually quoting himself from chapter 13, verse 16. You remember what I just said to you? A servant's not greater than his master? Let me apply that in a different way. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep your word too. But all these things they'll do to you on my account because they don't know the God who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, or you might say not as guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin or as guilty as they are now of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. What Jesus is saying is not that people aren't guilty until he comes. John 3 very much clarifies that. The world is condemned. It's not that people aren't guilty until he comes, but when he comes and people reject him, it compounds their guilt. That's why Jesus said in another place of scripture, like to the people in his hometown and his home region who rejected him, it's going to be more tolerable on judgment day for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is on you. It's not that Sodom and Gomorrah aren't guilty. They are. But they're not guilty of the heinous crime of rejecting Jesus, the creator, become human. Their guilt is magnified after they see the signs and reject him. Jesus says, but the word, verse 25, that's written in their law, he's quoting Psalm 69, must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But... When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So these words of counsel really to toughen up disciples for facing life in a hostile world and on a note of hope, you're not going to be left alone. The Holy Spirit is going to help you and empower all the reports that you give of me in the hostile world. It's a note of hope. What's the main point of John 15? Well, it's actually in the first verse of chapter 16 where Jesus makes a summary statement. Look at the first verse of chapter 16. He says, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. The overarching message of John 15 is this. Remain in a relationship with Jesus. Stay put. Stay totally committed to him. It's very simple. 
if you want to use the word that's in the passage, abide in him. Remain in him. If you want to flip it around negatively, say, don't ever stop following him. Don't walk away from him. Don't deconvert. Or if you want to state it picturesquely, same thing. Like a branch, keep in vital connection to the vine. Stay. Remain. Don't walk away. Don't fall away. Don't pull yourself away. Right? In chapter 15, Jesus urges perseverance in discipleship. And he does this for two complementary reasons. I'm going to give them at the outset and then we'll work through them individually. The first reason pertains to love, the second to hate. Jesus is going to say in the first, basically half of the chapter, remain in a relationship with me. It's the only way to experience God's love. And in the last part of the chapter, he's going to say, remain in relationship with me. It's the only way to endure the world's hatred. These are two complementary reasons, so we're going to take some time and unpack them. The first one, remain in a relationship with Jesus. It's the only way to experience God's love now and forever. The whole reason that Jesus uses this illustration of vine and branch is to show us the connection between faith and love, between staying in him and bearing fruit or fulfilling the purpose of human existence. Faith and love stay connected to bear fruit. Trust Jesus to fulfill the purpose of your human existence. And this image, this illustration, should be just immediately relevant for all of us in Northeast Ohio, right? We live in what's called Ohio's wine country. They just changed the water tower to note this, right? Pretty much anywhere we drive in any direction on any day, we are passing acres and acres and acres of vines, grapevines. It should be immediately relevant to us. And the illustration as well is really, really simple. In other words, when we pass these beautiful fields of ordered rows that are really cool to see in between as you go by, Christians, this should remind us of the truth of John 15. It's teaching a really, really simple, forceful lesson. All right, I'm going to try to put it as simply and as forcefully as I can. Branches on a grapevine that get disconnected from the vine aren't good for anything except starting fires. How's that for simplicity? If there's a branch somewhere in those fields and it's not connected to a vine, they're going to pick it up and throw it away. That's Jesus' point. By contrast, if there's a branch connected to the vine, that branch can fulfill its purpose. It can grow grapes that can be pressed into juice and wine. That branch is still good for fulfilling its purpose. Branches that aren't connected get thrown away. Branches that are can still be useful for the purpose they're made. It's with that vivid illustration 
of grapevines that Jesus commands his followers to persevere, to stay put, to abide, to remain, to stay connected. Remain in relationship with me, he says, because it's the only way to experience God's love. You say, wait, wait, God's love, show me how that's connected. Well, if you just look at the chapter and you say, what is Jesus concerned about in bearing fruit? It's not really one thing. It's a whole slew of things that I think could be summarized by love. You love God. You love Christ and show that love by continuing to obey him. You love one another. You love the hostile world and you keep sharing the gospel with them in the power of the Spirit. That's fruitfulness. It's loving God and loving Christ and obeying Christ out of love and loving others for Christ's sake and loving the hostile world. It's love. That's the purpose we exist, for, for which we exist, right? I want to park on this for just a minute. I want to apply it in three ways before we get to point two, all right? Applying point one in three ways. I'm going to state the illustration and then the point one after the other. The first application is this. Branches on a vine exist to grow grapes. I know you're not in kindergarten, (laughs) but it's really helpful sometimes to just state it as simply as possible. Branches exist to grow grapes. Reflecting God's love is the whole point of being human. That's why we're made. I think it's just really critical to take a step back from this illustration and get the big picture again of the whole point of being human. From the very first page of the Bible, we are told that the point of being human is to image God. We are image bearers. And that is, we experience and enjoy God's love. That's what humans are created to do. And then we express, we extend God's love to others. Vertically, we know God's love. Horizontally, we show God's love. That's what it means to be human. Grapevines exist to grow grapes. Humans exist to experience God's love. To experience it from him and extend it. Mirroring him, imaging him. That's what it means to be human. Now, the point of life, to just try to get into more nitty-gritties of our lives, these are things that I've had to remind myself of daily this week, okay? The point of life is not to have fun. The point of life is not to make money. And the point of life is not to make a name for yourself, Let me go to some good things that we often live for. The point of life is not to be healthy. The point of life is not to work hard. The point of life is not to have everything clean and orderly. The point of life is not to occasionally go on a sweet vacation. The point of life is to love God and others. Right? The point of work is to love God and others with your skills and time. The point of money is to love God and others with what he's given you. The point of health 
is to be able to love God and others with your strength. The whole point of vacation is to get recharged physically, emotionally, spiritually, so you can love God and others the rest of the time. Life's about God, loving him, loving others for him. That's what it means to bear fruit, to experience God's love, to extend God's love. We must be connected to the vine. Grape vines exist to grow grapes. The point of human life is to reflect God's love. Second application, dead branches get burned. The point, non-Christian, if you live for yourself, you'll be judged in hell. It's got to be stated that forcefully. Jesus says in verse 2, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Some people get tripped up on that word, of mine, thinking, oh, that's, that's one that was connected. I think Jesus is referring to professing Christians that, after a time, walk away. John refers to them many times in these chapters. He's going to refer to them many times in his letters. People who appeared for a time to be in and then left. Jesus just states it very explicitly in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, that means persevere in following me. Stay put. He's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Mm. True faith perseveres. Faith that doesn't persevere is spurious. Jesus talks about it in the parable of the sower. He throws out seed on ground. Some of it comes up immediately, looks like it's going to be a good plant, and then gets choked. Doesn't bear fruit. It's spurious faith. And with these pictures of branches that we thought might be connected, actually they're not. They get gathered up, thrown away and into the fire. Jesus is picturing something very graphic, and that is God sentencing people to the fire of hell because he created them to love him and others. And instead, they rebelled against the creator's order and lived for themselves. Human life that's lived selfishly, I'm going to be my own authority, Human life like that will be judged by God appropriately, severely. You might be someone who thinks, I'm a pretty good person. Why would I need Jesus to save me? Those Christians, they're singing about being poor and weak. It's not me. I'm pretty strong. Why would I need a Savior? I'm a pretty good person. I mean, my life philosophy is live and let live. You're missing the point of being human. The point of being human is so much more. It is to love God, to reflect him in loving others more than you naturally love yourself. If you refuse to trust Jesus, 
if you refuse to submit your life to him, if you refuse to allow him to be your authority and allow him to forgive your selfishness and reconcile you to God, you will be thrown away and burned. That's the language of Jesus. He said it because he loves you. He speaks with authority, with the authority of God. I urge you, if you've not trusted him, to trust him today. Commit your life to him today. Let him forgive you. Let him begin his work of restoration in you. Third application is living branches get pruned. Christian, this means that God lovingly inflicts pain to increase your love. Hmm. This is hard. In verses 2 and 3, look back at those. Jesus explains that God, the farmer, the vine dresser, the gardener, he prunes us. And this illustration indicates that God often convicts us with the word when we hear it preached, or he cuts us with trials in order to increase our love for him and for others. It's often trials that force us to realize, oh yeah, life isn't about health. It's trials that shake our work, that we start saying, oh yeah, life's not simply about working hard and being perceived as successful. Life's about loving God and loving others. And if we forget that the whole point of life is to love God and others, then we're going to start thinking idolatrously that money and success, being liked by others, that this is the point of life, and trials are going to ruin us. Trials that God allows into our lives are going to seem cruel. They're going to seem so unnecessary. God, why are you doing this? Because we've gotten our sights off of the fact that loving God and loving others is the point of life, not being comfortable, not having it easy. Jesus knows here, in verses 2 and 3, he knows that trials that prune us could become catalysts that actually lead to our defection. They could lead us to start saying, God, why do I even follow you in the first place? Following you is not worth it. But if you remember that the whole point of being a branch in a grapevine is bearing fruit to God's glory, you're going to trust when the farmer cuts into your life. You're going to trust him when he painfully prunes your life. Trials can break people, but trials can make people. Trials make heroes. They can clarify our purpose. They can purify us. They can powerfully highlight that the greatest joy in my life is God, not my health. Trials can put a highlighter into our hand 
allowing us to magnify what matters most to us. And if we keep in mind that the whole point of being a branch is bearing fruit for the farmer's use, and trials aren't an interruption, the pruning helps. It's really critical that we remember this, believers. The second point is that we need to remain in relationship with Jesus because it's the only way to endure the world's hatred. No one should ever tell you that following Jesus is easy. It is good. It is not easy. In many ways, it's much harder. That's why some people who deconvert will often say that breaking off my relationships with family and friends and the church that I knew, it was hard, but I feel so much freer. Following Jesus is hard. It's hard. I get why people say that. In this chapter, Jesus prepares his followers for the trials that are to come, not only when God the farmer prunes us, but also when we face a hostile world, when we face persecution from the hostile world. He's teaching every Christian that the world around us that doesn't know him will hate us just like it hated him. And the reason for this, he says, is theological. It's because we are connected to God. We know God and we represent God. Christians represent God. And it's God's authority that the world hates. That's Jesus' logic. In fact, this is John's very definition of the world. The world is that whole group of rebellious, autonomous humanity. Those people who say, I want to be my own authority. I'm not going to trust God to be my authority. That's the world. And so it's not surprising that John says, in this world, those who submit to God's authority are going to be resisted by those who don't like God's authority. We are people who with our words, and even just by our very lives as we try to live consistently as Christians, we're just constantly saying God exists. And we're rebels by nature, but we've submitted ourselves to God. And Jesus is really the only way to God, and we've had to submit our lives to him. By our very lives... There's message going on. There's messaging going on about authority and submission. There's messaging that's going on about your need to submit, but right now your present unwillingness to submit. It could happen at a wedding ceremony, right? When we're saying God has made two people one. We say that a dozen times in a wedding ceremony, two people, one. And people start getting convicted because, oh, that's an authoritative statement about marriage, about sexuality, about gender. We might not have needed to say anything else except, according to God's design, the man has left his father and mother He's been joined to his wife, and the two have become one. And there's authority that goes out 
and blankets the world who doesn't want to hear that kind of authority, right? Just the very presence, Christians getting married and reading scripture makes people uncomfortable, makes people say, I resist that, right? But Jesus ends by reminding us that although we experience hatred, we're also, as believers, in the entire time that he's away from us bodily, we're going to experience the help of the Spirit. That's in verse 26 where he says, you're going to experience the help of the Spirit of truth. And he's going to, as it were, empower us to love those who hate us and to keep speaking the gospel to people who don't want to hear it. And because of it, someday, there, some people, they're going to be like us. We used to resist God's authority, and he made us bow before it. And the Spirit is going to help us to keep extending the love of God to others, and some of them will bow to the Son of Man, and they'll experience his forgiveness and his restoration. Following Jesus isn't easy, but it's worth it. I want to conclude by talking about an issue that's at the very heart of this chapter. The main point, as I said it, is remain in relationship with Jesus. Remain in relationship with Jesus. And a few times throughout the message, I've used this term deconvert, deconversion. This is a major topic in news headlines, and it is the sober topic I think we need to conclude this message on. I want to do it this way. John Marriott is a professor at Biola in the philosophy department. And a few months ago, he published a new book entitled The Anatomy of Deconversion. The subtitle for the book is Keys to a Lifelong Faith in a Culture That's Abandoning Christianity. And he points out a recent study done by the Pine Tops Foundation He concluded, based on current statistics, that 35 million children raised in Christian homes will say that they are no longer Christians by 2050. He said, this is going to present the church with the largest missions opportunity in U.S. history. The reality is that right now, one million children raised in Christian homes per year are deconverting. Marriott was asked in an interview, what are the various factors that lead to deconversion? What are the various factors? He's speaking really as a philosophy professor, a sociologist, and so he's summarizing years of study on this topic of deconversion. He says, when you ask, why did you leave? of someone who's deconverted. The answer is always going to be something like this. There are intellectual reasons. We just don't find that it's true anymore. We can no longer believe in Christianity and the truth of it or in the existence of God. There are no good arguments or evidence of his existence. There are problems with the Bible, contradictions between the Bible and science, or we're really bothered by the morality of God in certain parts of the Bible. He said intellectual reasons are going to cluster like this. 
It's going to sound something like this. Or, he said, secondly, there are personal reasons. People will say, I left because I've been emotionally hurt by people in the church who've been judgmental or hypocritical. I've had bad experiences with church leadership. I've had a bad experience with God. He hasn't lived up to my expectations. God betrayed me. I expected him to come through for me. In some of these cases, Marriott is quoting individuals he's interviewed. How come I've lived for God my whole life, and now all these terrible things are happening to me? He's let me down. Maybe he's not even there. And Marriott concludes, usually the first catalyst toward deconversion is some sort of emotional hurt that opens up the door to questioning. We just need to let the reality of what's going on in our American culture settle in. This is grievous. It's what's happening right now. In our teaching at Tri-County, whether it's my teaching, or whether it's teens, or whether it's children's church or Sunday school, we are constantly trying to teach the truth in a way that engages with people's questions and people's doubts. We are trying constantly. This is one of the major themes of Greg's ministry among the teens, is like any question is totally fair game. There is a safe environment for questioning anything you want about the faith. That's the environment we're trying to create at this church. It's not that questions aren't allowed. Questions are encouraged. Discussion is encouraged. We're deeply concerned to interact with people's intellectual struggles, to understand people's personal struggles of faith. The reality is, of course, I can't respond to each of these questions, these concerns today, this morning. I simply want to point out that, based on Marriott's extensive research, it seems that many people, he actually suggests that usually this is the case, usually the people who deconvert had high expectations for what following Jesus would do to them, would do for them. And those expectations get disappointed. Disappointed expectations. And it leads them to, it kind of triggers questions, questions. In Jesus' words of farewell to his disciples in John 15, Jesus taught his disciples to have accurate expectations. He equipped them and us for enduring a life of hurt, personal hurt from those within the church and those outside the church. He did not teach us to expect a problem-free life. He taught us that following him is hard. He taught us to expect persecution and hardships. Just think about it. Most of the men he's talking with in this room, most of the men he's talking with are going to suffer and die for following him. In that sense, following Jesus ruined their lives. And Jesus equipped them for a life of struggle. A life that would involve enduring defection. A life that would involve constant trials, 
expectation of hatred. And he said, in view of all these things, abide, remain, stay put. It's the only way to fulfill the purpose for which you breathe. As one pastor put it, the greatest danger disciples face is not death. It's deconversion. And I am sure that every one of his disciples who heard him speak on this dark night is right now shouting from the great cloud of witnesses over us saying, follow him, stay put. It's hard, but it's worth it. Disciples, stay put. Remain in relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that your words would come forcefully to us today by your Spirit's power so that our lives would be changed by what we've just heard. God, I pray that beginning with me, I would apply what I've heard. Accepting trials and not resenting them. I pray that I, one of the leaders in this congregation would be marked by faithfulness, staying put. God, I pray that you would bless our whole church, help none of us to think, oh, I'm I'm fine. I'm not going anywhere. Oh God, I pray that all of us who think we stand would beware lest we fall. For Jesus' glory, I pray that we would live with a sobriety. Amen. Amen.